the Renaissance painter and sculptor Michelangelo is famous for many of his iconic works. You'll probably know a lot of them. There's the Pieta, sculpture of Mary holding the crucified Jesus. There's his painting of the uh, ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which includes the well-known creation of Adam. It includes the Last Judgment section. And you're also likely familiar with his sculpture of David. Uh, the David statue, and the statue, when he made it, impressed even his contemporaries, not just for the statue's smoothness and detail, but also for its sheer magnitude. The David statue stands about 17 feet tall. Now, it came from one massive marble emerged this David statue. It took the 26-year-old Michelangelo, which is insane. It took the 26-year-old Michelangelo two years to complete. And upon completing the work, legend has it that people ask Michelangelo, Michelangelo, how did you do it? Supposedly, he said something like this. I created a vision of David in my mind and simply carved out everything that was not David. Now, you may have heard that before. It's probably used in lots of different settings. Do you live out what you say you believe? What areas of your life contradict your claim to follow Christ? The book of James touches on the reality that each of us have inconsistencies between our lives and our faith. And these inconsistencies need to be chiseled away. Now, the book of James, we'll find, hits a variety of topics, but his main concern is that Christ's followers would be fully devoted to him, what he calls perfect or complete. He wants there to be no inconsistencies left. If we are the large marble pieces, we can say that what we will be is still coming, but it's not here yet. In the meantime, while we're here, God is working in us to make us into who he says we already are, righteous and perfect in Christ. John Newton, the famous hymn writer, puts the process like this. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. The book of James, which is actually a letter, reflects a lifetime of teaching and deep knowledge of the Bible. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the book of Proverbs especially influences James' main concern, that we're not who we ought to be, that we still have inconsistencies, that we believe in God but do not love him and his people and other people perfectly. So throughout the letter, James will show a variety of areas of life where his readers needed to grow toward a wholehearted devotion of the Lord. That's his main concern. And whatever passage, whatever section of the letter, he carries this concern in some way. And we see it especially in the opening verses. So you have a copy of God's word. I want you to turn to the letter of James, chapter 1. If you're looking at a Bible that looks like this in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 1011. That's 1011. 
The book of James, beginning at chapter 1, we'll read the first 12 verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is God's word. Well, James doesn't begin with a very uplifting topic. He begins the letter by saying, Guys, let's talk about all the times when life is crummy. When it comes to life's hard moments, what we call suffering or trials, the Bible, including this book of James, doesn't do two things. It doesn't avoid talking about them and kind of skirting the issue. But neither does it despair, being hopeless in approaching the issue. So James here connects trials to his main concern for his readers, and that's growth in their wholehearted devotion to the Lord. So if we could summarize this passage, summarize the sermon into kind of one sentence, we'll say that trials contribute to our growth and our wholehearted devotion to God. So receive them with joyous trust in the good God and remain anchored in who you are in Christ. Here's what we want to do first. We want to take verse 1 as an opportunity to learn more about James, this letter, and his audience. And then we'll develop this main point of the passage by walking through four steps. So we'll see the command, the power, the case study, and the promise. Uh, If you miss those, you're trying to write it down, I will repeat them later. So don't worry. Uh, If you're new to Old Oak, this is just kind of what we do every week. We take different books of the Bible, take a portion of those, sometimes smaller, sometimes bigger. We try to find the main point of that passage and proclaim it to us. See how God's word still speaks and still works in our lives and how it points to and centers on Jesus Christ, as all of the scriptures do. Uh, so we call that expositional preaching, exposing uh, what God's word says and receiving it for us. So we're in the book of James. We're just starting a sermon series. We'll be in here for about 10 to 12 weeks. So today we are in James 1, 1 to 12. And first, just plop down on verse 1 and notice the beginning of the letter. And like a lot of letters at this time, James begins with who the author and audience are. And knowing that James is writing a letter is important in the first place. That James is writing a letter tells us certain things to expect. 
Like any letter, he's writing to people. So it would tell us to expect something of the audience's situation and the audience's needs. Those are the things that are going to drive the content of James's letter. And a lot of times, he won't go into detail about what his audience is going through because they already know what they're going through. So it's left for us sort of to piece that together. So if it is a letter, then it makes sense that there's someone writing it. And James tells us in the very first word of this book who is writing this letter. James. Now his name is actually the Greek name for Jacob. But just long story short, the influence of French and Latin has given us the English name of James. So that's how we're going to refer to him for the rest of the series as James. Now, who is this James? There are several different Jameses in the Bible. And here, we don't get much of a biography of this person. So it has to be a James that's well known enough just to say James and we know who he is. It's like just saying LeBron, and you know it's LeBron James. Uh, Well, there are several different Jameses in the Bible. There's James, the son of Zebedee. This is John's brother. There is James, the son of Alphaeus, another one of the apostles. This is also known as James the Less, because he's only really known when he's listed. There's James, the father of Judas. This is the other apostle named Judas, who I feel really bad for. Um, And then none of these Jameses, though, lived long enough. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, was the first martyr of the apostles. And none of these James, Jameses was prominent enough to write a letter and having just said James and people would know who he is. This leaves how most people conclude with one possibility, that the person who wrote this book is James, the half-brother of Jesus. So from other places in the Bible... We know that this James was among Jesus' family that did not believe him to be the Son of God and did not believe him to be the Messiah. He grew up with Jesus, and when his ministry started, he was among his family members who basically called Jesus insane. But this all changed when Jesus died and rose again. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that among the people who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection was James. Now, we know that this James was also a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. In Acts 15, he's present at what's known as the Jerusalem Council. And in Galatians, we see that the Apostle Paul regards this James as a fellow apostle, one who's commissioned directly by the risen Christ. So the way James identifies himself here, he says he's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus. Out of all the things to pick, This is what he picks as the most important thing to know about him. Not that, hey guys, this is the one who grew up with Jesus, who saw him when he was a little kid. No, the most important identifying mark about himself is that he is a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, being one who is solely committed to God and Jesus. The one he formally regarded as being insane, he now followed as Lord and placed alongside God himself. It was a stunning transformation. Well, who is James writing to? He says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that 12 tribes is a way to refer to the nation of Israel. The 12 tribes coming from the 12 sons of Jacob, and Jacob would become Israel. 
And in the dispersion was historically used to refer to Israelites that were exiled and scattered because of different uh, empires. So you have the Assyrian Empire, you have the Babylonian Empire who invaded Israel and kind of brought people out of Israel and dispersed them. But now if we know a little bit of the background about who James is, especially from the book of Acts, that he was present in the Jerusalem church, we can conclude that James is writing to predominantly Jewish Christians. So we look at the book of Acts, we find that the Christians in Jerusalem endured things like famine and persecution, uh, being attacked for believing in Jesus. And the persecution they endured was so bad that it says it forced them to leave Jerusalem and disperse in areas beyond geographic Israel. So thus, James is writing to a group of churches with predominantly Jewish Christians that were scattered outside of Israel. So this is a good place kind of enter in, lead to how James begins the body of his letter. So these Christians were going through really hard times, were going through trials. This would be on the forefront of their minds. So James does not skip a beat. He immediately addresses what would, they would be thinking of. So let's read again, verses 2 to 4. And I want you to try to notice the main command James is giving his readers. Pick up verse 2. It says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is a preacher at heart. Letter is full of memorable one-liners, vivid word pictures. And here, just like a good preacher, he starts with a challenge that would get people's attention right away. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Now he's not saying that it's the only response to trial that we, we are to have is joy. He's saying more along the lines to count it pure joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Still, that's a challenge, nonetheless. So like a true preacher, James then unpacks what he means, gives the reason why they should do this, and explains how it works. If you just read it slowly, it's easy to see how this all fits together, easy to see how it flows. So the process is something like this. You know, trials produce steadfastness uh, or endurance, kind of stick to And steadfastness leads to perfection and wholeness. Now, we know this process from life just generally, right? Like the heavier resistance that comes against us, the stronger we'll get. Uh, there's a reason why you increase weights to get stronger, to get your muscles bigger. Uh, there's a reason why couples who've been married for 50 years generally have stronger marriages than couples who have been married for five months. Well, that's because trials have made their relationship durable and strong. So there are more observations we can make about the details of this particular paragraph in James. But I want us to see what James is trying to do, just big picture, on the whole. On the whole, the big thing James is concerned about for them is how they respond to trials. He tells them to count it all joy. He tells them to let God work through them. Instead of going into details about the exact trials they are facing, he talks about how they respond to trials. Now that alone should show us something. It should show us a couple of things. It shows us that no matter what comes our way, 
We can control how we respond. No matter what comes our way, we can always control how we respond. Since James commands his readers to respond this way, he commands them to, is the imperative. It also shows that we ought to respond to our trials in this way, that we are responsible to. So, if we're going to respond to our trials in this way, count it all joy, what do we need? Well, what does James appeal to here? You look at how verse 3 starts. He says, for you know, for you know. So if we're going to respond to trials, we need to know something. Know something about how God uses trials. Not just know it as a fact, but believe it in our hearts. And if we're going to have a joyful and a hopeful perspective that trials ultimately lead to our good, then we must have a conviction about the goodness and wisdom and power of God. If we're going to have joy in the face of trials, joy and hope, we must believe something about God's character and know something about God's character. Isn't this how Jesus reassured his disciples over and over again, especially in the Sermon on the Mount? He reassures his disciples that our Father loves us, that he knows what we need, that nothing is outside of his control. So, for example, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 8, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In Matthew 6, 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Friends, we are acquainted with various trials. Now, maybe they aren't the same trials as the ones that James's readers faced. But did you notice that James didn't say, if you face trials of various kinds? He said, when you face trials of various kinds. You know, no one really plans trials. They just sort of happen. You know, no one, no one gets married and plans to bicker and have disagreements and fight. No little kid has a mom or a dad and plans for him or her to be gone one day. It's a random day. No one plans to get diagnosed with cancer or some other kind of disease. No one plans trials, but when they happen, we're told not to put on a fake smile. We're told to root ourselves in what we know, that in his goodness and power, God uses every trial for our ultimate good. Root ourselves in what we know. C.S. Lewis does just a phenomenal job illustrating this. Listen to what he says here. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand that what he is doing. He is getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you're not that surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in such a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing on a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up new towers, making courtyards. 
You thought you were being made into a nice little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Another one of the 20th century's most famous philosophers, Mike Gerard Tyson, said this, Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> Trials are inevitable. So how will we respond? We root ourselves in what we already know. God is working for our good in all things. No exceptions. Now we could leave this here, but we should notice that James and his, re and his readers have unique resources to be assured of this, to know this for certain, that God is using our trials even for our good. And that unique resource is the gospel of Jesus Christ. James and his readers are servants of the Lord Jesus. They are saved by and follow the one who is acquainted with all trials and endured the greatest trial ever, bearing the wrath of God for the sin of those who believe in him. And through the greatest trial that he faced came about the greatest good ever accomplished. Full and final forgiveness of sin, peace with God, adoption as children of God, and a home with God forever. So we can count trials as joy, knowing God works in us through them for our good. Not just as wishful thinking, but as a proven promise, proven at the cross and the empty tomb. Well, if you've seen the cinematic classic known as Happy Gilmore, You'll remember the scene after Happy failed to make the semi-pro hockey team for the umpteenth year in a row. The next day, Happy went to the local batting cages, taking nothing in with him, no bat, no helmet. He proceeded then to stand in front of home plate, waiting for the baseballs to pummel him in the chest, seeming to love every second of it. Now, when a stranger approached him and saw what he was doing, he asked Happy, what are you doing? And Happy didn't skip a beat. He responded immediately. I've got 364 more days till hockey tryouts. I've got to toughen up. <laughs> Responding to trials with joy because God uses them to strengthen us and draw us closer to him, that response can seem crazy. Now, trials aren't joyful in themselves. The Bible says elsewhere in Hebrews that all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But it also says that the fruit of discipline is peace and righteousness. That's what we're to have joy in, the fruit of the hard times, not the hard times themselves. So, as James moves into the next paragraph, he acknowledges that it is hard to remember God works in trials for our good. That's hard to remember. It's hard to recognize it. It's hard to remember that medicine is good for us when it tastes really nasty. We are called to have hope and joy in trials because we know God is using them for good in us. But if we're to know that, we need wisdom for that. We need power to know that. So that's the second stage in progressing through this main point, the power. Let's read again verses 5 to 8 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, 
Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So this comes directly on the heels of James telling his readers how they're to respond to trials of various kinds. And he says then, we must need wisdom to have this kind of response. So friends, here's the problem. We all know this problem. Why we need power to live out this command. Why we need wisdom to respond to trials correctly. Because we're told to believe that God is working for our good. But it's hard to see that when everything we see and experience seems to contradict that claim. We're told to believe that God has purposes for our good in trials, but our trials look purposeless. We're told to believe that we'll grow through trials, and in the midst of them, we can't see how God is growing us. Because we can't see, because we don't know, we need wisdom. We need a wisdom that can see all of life as being under the control of a good and wise and loving God. And even if we do have that perspective, we need a wisdom to know how to act in the midst of trials. Trials can make us feel like we're underneath a wave, not knowing which way is up. So this is what commentator Alec Machier says, what the wise person looks like. He says the wise person will be able to see life as James has pictured it in verses 2 to 4. Able to make personal decisions and to shape life's pathway so as to enjoy the progress toward maturity which he has promised. We need wisdom to see life as being under the control of a good and loving and wise God. But how do we get it? How do we get wisdom? Now, we might expect James to go a couple of different directions here. We might expect him to say something like, you know, to get wisdom, you have to study. You have to commit yourself to being rooted in God's word, which would be true. You might expect James to say, you can't just get wisdom. You have to amass wisdom over a long period of time through different experiences, which is also true. But the route James takes is really a surprisingly simple one. If we want wisdom... We should ask God. He literally says to ask the giving God. That's how it reads. That it's in God's nature to give good gifts to his children. He says God is generous. Literally means God is singular. He has no hidden motives or agendas for giving. And he says God does not reproach. That means God is not going to demean us when we ask him for wisdom. So we've zoomed in a little bit. Need wisdom for trials. Let's zoom back out. Just remember what James is doing, okay? James's big concern, growth in their wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Trials give them a greater faith and remove sin from their lives. For trials really to do that, we need to remember that God works in them for our good. Maintain hope and joy in them. Respond to them rightly. 
since it's difficult to respond to them rightly and to trust God in them. We need wisdom. To get wisdom, we need to ask the giving and sincere God. Tracking the flow? Kind of very connected. So, this whole getting wisdom process, zoom back in for a second, seems too good to be true. It seems like we're approaching a vending machine and, you know, we see it through the glass and there's wisdom and E7. So we press E7 and the little spirally thing unwinds and, you know, props down. Presto, we have wisdom. Now, when we think it works like this, James reminds us that God cares about our sincerity. He cares about our integrity. He cares about our consistency. We may ask for wisdom in how to respond to trials in the right way. Wisdom for guidance during trials. But do we want God in the first place? Or do we seek other things besides him? Are we committed to God in the first place? Or are we committed to ourselves or other things? This is the doubting person that James describes. This is the one who is always in flux, tossed and driven by the wind. This is the one who attempts to serve two different masters. Now, a couple weeks ago, or no, it was last week, we saw a Lady Gaga impersonator when we were on vacation in Myrtle Beach. Now, there is a longer story behind that. There were other impersonators in this concert. Uh, but Lady Gaga is the one whose songs just are ingrained in my head since. Now, a couple of her songs that have been in my head, one of them is called A Million Reasons. You may know it. She sings about contemplating whether or not to break up with somebody. And the chorus includes the line, I bow down to pray, Lord, show me the way. And I went to advanced rhyming school for that one. Um, another one of the songs stuck in my head, it was sung that night, is called Born This Way, uh, where she says, don't hide yourself in regret, just love yourself and your sets. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Now, I don't know Lady Gaga personally, and there are lots of people who do this. Each one of us in this room do th does this. But these two songs communicate someone who is in flux, tossed and driven by the wind, someone with inconsistent desires. She wants guidance or wisdom from God, and yet she holds out no possibility for a need to change herself. She, she says she needs God, but ultimately, she's going to serve her own desires and do what she wants. This is a person, as James says, who is tossed and driven by the wind. And as Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. So contrast to that. Let's talk about the Christian. It's not that Christians don't feel waves of difficulty, and they don't feel the winds of doubt. It's that we have an anchor in the midst of them. And the anchor is Jesus' finished work at the cross. Friend, one day life will appear purposeless to you. You may be on calm waters now, but there will be a storm. It's not meant to scare. It's just meant to say it's a reality. So when that happens, where will you find meaning? Where will you find an explanation? Where will you find hope? Will you be tossed and driven by the wind? Or will you be anchored? 
It is wise, friend, to be anchored to God. To be anchored to God means being singularly devoted to him. To be anchored to God means that we are connected to him and made right with him through Christ in our place, who lived the perfect life that we should have lived, who died the death that we deserve, who lives ever to reign. To be anchored to God will mean a settled state of dependence that shows itself not just in talking about praying, but in actually praying. So one of the ways God helps us in the pursuit of this wise perspective of responding to trials in the right way, as James calls us to here, one of the ways God helps us in that is through his people. You think of this. We need to follow Christ among his people to help others endure and because we need help enduring ourselves. Friends, we need not just to learn about this, we need to see models of this. We need to see people in action who have joy amidst their trials and to imitate them as they imitate Christ. We need people not just to pray for us during our trials, we need people to pray with us during our trials. So friends, let's seek this wisdom together, praying to ask God to convince us and remind us that no matter what, he's forgiven us, he holds us, and he holds all things together. Anchor yourself in Christ, maybe for the first time today. And Christian brother or sister, hold fast to that anchor. Well, just in case his readers aren't still clear on this, like a good preacher, James gives a case study of what it looks like to anchor ourselves in God in the middle of tempestuous circumstances. So life is full of the various trials he spoke of back in verse 2. One example that he describes beginning in verse 9 is the example of finances. Being poor and being rich Both represent a difficulty that can either cause us to stumble or cause us to grow. So verses 9 to 11, I'll read them again. They say this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will one day pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The wisdom that God offers through the gospel of Christ guards us from the snares both of the low times of life and from the high times of life. So if we try to anchor ourselves, that is to find our worth, to find stability in anything besides Christ, then it will prove unstable and it will prove unwise. So both the poor person and the rich person can try to find an anchor in money. When trying to find worth and stability in money, the poor person will despair because they don't have any. Instead, anchoring himself in Christ, the poor person will be reminded that even though he is not rich in money, he is rich in the Lord Jesus. That God loves him so much that he sent his son to live and die for him that poor person will be reminded that Jesus has brought him back to God, a treasure beyond all measure that will last throughout eternity. 
when trying to find worth and stability in money, the rich person will have a false worth and a false stability. And it's just common wisdom, and each one of us has heard it, that we can't take our money with us. It remains here. It remains where moth and rust destroys, where thieves break in and steal. As James says, it will fade away. Instead, the rich person, anchoring himself in Christ, remembers that his worth is not in his possessions, but in Jesus' perfect life and substitutionary death. He remembers that just like his salvation, everything that he has, he has received from the Lord. So friends, when we try to anchor ourselves in anything besides God, we'll end up either despairing or finding a false worth or stability. So you see then, it is wise to anchor yourself in the good God who has proven his goodness and control in the gospel of his son. What else will give you as stable and as durable of a worth and identity as this? So Christian, are you attempting to anchor yourself in something or someone besides the Lord? Be it your health, your children, your country, your spouse, your money. Trials have a unique way to reveal what we are anchoring ourselves in. We discover how much we value something, how much we depend on it to give us worth and stability when it's taken away. So that's not to say that we're not allowed to feel pain. It's to say that there is one anchor that will never be moved and never be taken away. Anchor yourself in that. So let's close. Final step in our progression, and that's the promise. James sort of bookends this section by bringing up trials once again. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Trials, again, let's remember the process. Give us a perseverance that leads to a settled and complete character. This perseverance leads not only to our growth, but also, as it says here in verse 12, it leads to God's blessing. So here, James encourages his readers to continue to hold on in the face of trials because of the blessing that is to come. The crown of life, he says. This is not a crown like we would think of it, like kings wear. This is a crown like athletes wear, like in the, like the Olympic Games. The laurel wreaths given to the champions of the race. The crown. So in layman's terms, what James says in verse 12, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize. Anchored in Jesus alone, look at what lies ahead. Friends, think of what we will be, those in Christ Jesus. What we will be. We will have the crown of life. The crown of life. As the hymn puts it, there will be no more dying there. We'll be alive. No diabetes. No cancer. No colds. What we will be. We will be fearless. No longer fearing what we lack. No longer fearing what may attack us. 
No longer fearing what others think. No longer fearing that we might be slighted or that things will be unfair. We will be beautiful. I don't know exactly what this will look like. But the Bible says we will be radiant. We will be forever and truly and deeply happy. When things are going well here, when we are happy here, we almost get suspicious, like this is too good to be true, that something has to go wrong soon. We will never have that feeling. And we will be good. Friends, we will be good. No more lusting. No more lying. No more duplicity. Saying one thing, believing another, believing we say something, and doing another. When we see Jesus, we will be like him. 1 John 3 says, To hope in that purifies ourselves now. It gives us endurance now. It allows God to work in us now. So we get some taste of those things, of what we will be. We get some taste of those things here. But we keep going because there we will have those things in full. So we endure trials. We remain steadfast because of what lies ahead, the promise. This is similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. It says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We endure and we strive, knowing that we belong to Christ, knowing that heaven is on the horizon, knowing that God is the one who strengthens us, who holds us, and who promises to finish his work in us. So God wants us to grow. Trials will come. Friends, these truths don't work against each other. Wisdom is knowing that God is good, wise, and powerful to use our trials to make us more like his son and to make us wholly devoted to him. We ask God to give us wisdom to anchor ourselves in the finished work of Christ in the midst of all the storms of life as we sailed toward home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this promise here. We thank you for the promise of what we will be in Christ. We thank you for his finished work. Help us to anchor ourselves in him. And God, give us wisdom to respond to you in trust, in faith, and in love. And we thank you that you have proven all those things once and for all at the cross of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.